Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech... <laughs> what? A weekly biogen podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Forrestine. And I'm Damian Gordon. I had not read the intro before I started reading. <laughs> I, I snuck that in there. <laughs> it's Thursday, May 5th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. Biogen, of course. Biogen, biogen, always biogen. Adjuhelm is done, Michelle Vunatsos is out, and we'll break it all down. Before that, we will chat like a bunch of Cathy's about Pfizer and Moderna's earnings, a strange Vertex clinical hold, and nerd prom super spreaders or not. But first, a word about a new podcast from Stat. In a hospital, a code indicates some sort of crisis. And for so long, racism has created a crisis in American medicine. My name is Nicholas St. Fleur. I'm a science reporter here at STAT, and I'm excited to tell you about our new podcast that I'm hosting this spring. It's called Color Code. Color Code will take a hard look at the hidden and not-so-hidden forces behind the stark inequities faced by black clinicians and patients. We'll journey from a 1910 report that closed many black medical schools and explore modern day algorithms that reinforce bias. You'll hear from clinicians, researchers, and everyday folk who are just trying to give and get good care. We'll release episodes every other week. Racism in medicine is a national emergency. Together, let's raise the alarm. Two-plus years into the COVID-19 pandemic, a lot of the discussion on Wall Street has been just how much demand will there be for COVID-19 vaccines as the months go on and as the pandemic continues, despite the best efforts of many people. And so this week, we got some updates on that in the form of both Pfizer and Moderna presenting their quarterly earnings. And Meg, you spoke to the CEOs of both of those companies. What did we learn this week? Yeah, well, both of them are focused on preparing for the fall and an expectation that we are going to have booster shots in the fall, similarly to how we have flu shots, and that these are going to be updated. And what's interesting is that the FDA has scheduled a meeting to discuss strain selection for the fall, ostensibly at the end of June. But both Moderna and Pfizer gave the impression and the explicit statement in Moderna's case that they're basically going ahead with the Omicron plus original vaccine bivalent combination booster as the expected fall um, booster, uh, because if the FDA meets in late June and says, oh, it should be BA 2.12.1 or whatever, that's not going to be enough time for the companies to basically spend July to manufacture tens of millions of doses of that kind of booster and have it ready for August, where you'd put it into the channel, as Stefan Bunsell explained on CNBC on Wednesday morning, um, similarly to how the flu shot market works. And so it's kind of a head scratcher that the FDA is having this meeting in late June. Maybe it, they think that 
you know, the companies don't need to roll them out as quickly as Stefan Bunsell was talking about. But his expectation is essentially that that is the version of the shot that's going to get approved in late summer and start to become available in the fall. And this is a little concerning, I think, to public health people because we're starting to see some preprint work come out about these sublineages of Omicron. BA uh, 2.1, 2.1, which is the one that's, it's gaining ground really quickly in the United States and especially in the Northeast. Um, it's this, you know, sublineage of BA2 and it appears to be more transmissible, 25% more. There are also BA4 and 5 in South Africa, which could be sparking a new wave there, which appear to be more transmissible. And work has been suggesting that these potentially don't get a lot of protection from the original Omicron. And so the question is, what will you know, the vaccine that is the original plus, you know, the original Omicron, how well will that protect against these sublineages if they are what is circulating? Uh, It's just a big question. And I think, um, you know, Helen Branswell wrote a really great story about this, which is sort of like, we're just falling into these patterns. It's very difficult to change course, you know, this quickly right now, even though we do have this much faster technology in mRNA vaccines. No, it is frustrating to watch even from a distance that the timelines of viral evolution, um, the biological understanding of that evolution, and then, of course, biopharmaceutical invention and manufacturing just don't line up. So it just feels like we're constantly watching this like delayed game of whack-a-mole, at least for me, from a distance. And I can, I, I've heard the frustrations of people on every side of that, including the FDA, as you mentioned, which has made decisions that seem curious, but is constantly reminding people that they are underfunded and understaffed and have been doing this now for two and a half years. And I don't really know what the solution is. Yeah. And on a personal note, I think I told you guys that I got my second booster a couple of weeks ago. So now I feel like the guy who buys the computer and then a week later, the maker of said computer like upgrades and you know issues a brand new computer that I should have bought. So I, I don't know what to do now. Well, I think the expectation is that, sadly, that's not going to last much longer than six months for you anyway. So you should be primed and ready for, <laughs> for an upgrade come this fall. I mean, there is an expectation just to sort of wrap this up um, that if if you have Omicron plus the original vaccine, the original virus, maybe that does provide good protection. And we, we just haven't seen the data and those data are expected to come out you know, fairly soon for potential you know, late summer approval. Um, so so perhaps that will be enough. I mean, and that is the expectation of Moderna's CEO um, when he joined us on CNBC. The other thing I should just mention, because this is a huge question right now and we talk about it every week, is the vaccine for kids under five. Um Moderna said in its earnings release on Wednesday that its submissions would be complete in two weeks. Um, So there's been a lot of complaints that the FDA is dragging its feet and taking so long to review these things. And Moderna just put out this sort of, you know, little note in its earnings release that the the submissions are still not complete. And of course, we don't know the degree to which FDA can do rolling review, and presumably it's doing everything that it can. Um, But that's an update there. They say they're preparing for a late June potential launch for their kids' vaccine. Pfizer, meanwhile, we're still waiting to see the dose three data. They had said early April, and, you know, we're in early May, and we haven't seen it. Um, but they are expecting that over the coming weeks, which is a term that is now making a lot of parents of kids under five's heads explode because <laughs> they keep saying that. Um, but Pfizer CEO said their two-dose data looked similar to what we've seen from Moderna's two-dose data, and they expect their three-dose data to be a lot better. Um, so we'll just have to see if that turns out to be the case when we see the data. 
So the other thing that was kind of interesting that came out of Moderna's earnings is how much money they have. They have $19.3 billion in cash equivalents and short-term investments right now from you know their COVID vaccine business, basically. So what do you guys think they're going to buy or do? There are some people who want them to issue a dividend. How terribly exciting. <laughs> no, it's not. Well, I know. It's, <laughs> no, you're right. It's not, it's not terribly exciting. But I think the idea there is that, you know, they can't possibly spend all of that money uh, realistically. And so the idea is, is that kind of to reward shareholders in a different way is that, you know, you can return a portion of that to shareholders and still have plenty of money to go out, maybe buy something or do something. But like, just because they've had this incredible, it's like just a, this huge windfall, right? This COVID windfall and that some of that money should be returned to shareholders. And that's kind of the idea behind the dividend, which they're not doing. So it's a moot point. Right, right. Well, you can see how it's almost like intellectually, I don't know, unattractive to people in biotech or any kind of industry that prides itself on uh, the word innovation, because you're kind of saying like this capital is better suited for your pocket than in our beautiful brains. And I don't think Moderna or many biotech companies are comfortable with that. So you could see them. I mean, to date, they have talked about investing more broadly in their own science, and we'll see how that goes. But as to what they would buy, I mean, they're in a tough situation because I don't think they're looking to, you know, replicate the history of companies like Gilead Sciences and others that have been expansive when they've had large cash piles and look to, you know, places that are outside their core strengths. I think Moderna, as they've said, were committed to what they call genetic medicine, um, whether that be mRNA or um, genome editing. But then when you look at the companies that they could buy, they're all extremely expensive. And, and presumably maybe not the best idea for them. So I feel like Moderna has this kind of like Goldilocks problem of like they're dealing with investors asking them what they're going to buy. But the big things that would really move the needle in terms of sentiment are arguably overpriced. And the small things that they've so far been investing in don't really seem to get them a lot of credit. So I, I don't really know what they should do. The other player we're talking about here, Pfizer, has said they're going to try to add $25 billion in revenue through business development by 2030. So the speculation can be rampant on what they might buy, too. Well, I would just say, hurry up, Pfizer. We want some M&A. So. <laughs> Give their BD people some of your yeah. iced coffee. Yeah, come on. <laughs> so moving on, we've talked about this before on this podcast. Vertex Pharmaceuticals has a very interesting early stage idea that if it works, could be functionally curative for type 1 diabetes. But this week, that idea ran into something of a roadblock. Adam, what happened? Yeah, Damien, back in April, uh, I think it was the week actually you were gone, uh, we did we kind of did this big segment about this stem cell therapy for type 1 diabetes that Vertex is, uh, is developing. And of course, after we do that, then they run into this problem. So yeah, so the FDA has placed this program. It's a very early stage program, but has placed the program on clinical hold. And we don't know have a lot of details about why it was placed on clinical hold, except for that the agency basically told Vertex that there was, quote, insufficient information, end quote, to support an increase in the dosing of this therapy. That came as a surprise. It sounded like it came to as a surprise to Vertex, uh, as much as kind of everyone else out there. Um, when I spoke to them, uh, earlier this week, um, you know, this is again, this is a stem cell therapy for type one diabetes, and essentially, you're they're taking these stem cells and they're basically coaxing them to um, to 
to grow into uh, insulin-producing cells that uh, that reside in the pancreas. It's a very cool technology, potentially curative for type 1 diabetes. And they've had some pretty intriguing early results just from a couple of patients who were given a half a dose of this therapy for safety reasons, right? They wanted to kind of start lower dose to kind of see how it went. And, and so they've got some intriguing results. And then they actually moved into uh, a third patient, into treating a third patient with a full dose of the therapy. Um, right after they did that, the FDA said, uh, excuse me, let's tap the brakes and uh, let's put this on clinical hold because we we're not sure if there's, again, sufficient information that would justify moving to that full dose. Again, that's what sort of seemed to confuse Vertex because they had already done that. Um, and so now they have to sort of go back talk to the agency and sort of figure out what the regulators want to kind of allow them to kind of to to treat more patients essentially. So this all puts us in the familiar situation which I know we've talked about on this podcast before which is that the FDA does not speak uh, on these matters in any situation or virtually any situation. So we are left only with the company's description of what the FDA has said. I'm not suggesting Vertex is being in any way dishonest, but it makes it difficult to try to adjudicate what's going on externally, because based on everything we know, it sounds like, I don't know, a maximal conservatism, maybe a little bit of an overreach by the FDA, but we don't know what data the FDA has seen. We don't know what ancillary concerns they may have. We do know that cell therapies, which this is, um, have run into intermittent clinical holds based on FDA concerns that tend to get lifted. This happened with CAR-T. It's happened fairly recently with with the -the off-the-shelf cell therapies for cancer. So it could be that this is just a blip that we will forget about if, in fact, this program goes on to succeed. But in this one moment, we're kind of left scratching our heads. So last Saturday night was the Nerd Prom, which is the D.C. big event. It's the White House Correspondents Association dinner. Uh, and there were some concerns, obviously, about people gathering at a big hotel, uh, indoors, without masks, COVID, blah, blah, blah. Meg, uh, has there been any backlash? Well, there's definitely been a lot of backlash, <laughs> a lot of criticism for everybody getting together. And there was a Politico story about how some new technology using UV light um, that can sort of eliminate the virus from the air uh, was offered and declined. Um, although the association, according to this story, pointed out uh, the technology may still be experimental and they just didn't have time to really vet it before they implemented it and they worried that the it might make the president look blue um, so the president was there unmasked for a lot of you know the, the evening um, and we have started to hear about a couple cases coming out of the dinner you know whether these were caused by the dinner um, or whether this will turn into a gridiron like event is really not known I mean just the prevalence of COVID right now. Some of those people were probably going to test positive. They might where they got exposed. We don't know. Um, but we'll keep watching this because there was a forecast um, that it could be another super spreader event. So can I just say, like, who cares? <laughs> oh, you're of the Lena Wen camp, I see. <laughs> yeah, and like, like somebody gets someone goes to a thing and they get COVID. Like everyone gets people get COVID all the time. So like, I don't understand why we need to have like people being sort of ratted out that they had COVID. I think it's kind of like. COVID shaming. And it seems at this time during, you know, where we are, it seems that we should. Yeah, be Yeah, I think that. The, the argument from people who do say it's 
important, not that people should be ratted out for having COVID, um, but that there might be people there in the server capacity, the, the folks who are you know working the the dinner who don't have the same choices as other people or then the same access to healthcare and, and things like that. So that's the concern. I firmly agree that attendees should be shamed, but not because of the pandemic, but rather because that is just an abhorrent aesthetically and culturally event that I, I can't believe it exists. People gather and listen to unfunny, <laughs> self-aggrandizing jokes. I, it just like, I, I, I don't know. Seeing this news was a reminder that that event still exists, which was infuriating to me. And then I saw the COVID backlash and I thought, yeah, sure, whatever. But you're just you're just jealous because you've never been invited to the nerd. <laughs> I have never been invited in. Oh, nor have I. So there you go. <laughs> Something tells me you guys aren't going to be high on the list. <laughs> now for the segment you've all been waiting for, Biogen. We're going to talk about Biogen. Uh, I don't know, Damien... Why don't you start us off with what happened this week? Sure. So this week, Biogen made two announcements, one of which is that they are effectively cutting all spending on trying to market Aduhelm, the FDA-approved treatment for Alzheimer's disease that probably needs no introduction, but that, as as you may know, was controversially approved last year and has since endured a disastrous commercial rollout um, in which physicians, payers, outside scientists most of the relevant stakeholders have objected to the idea that it is worth paying for, culminating in Medicare, um, finalizing a very stringent policy that basically all but negated any kind of market for it. Seeing the writing on the wall, Biogen has decided to stop throwing good money after bad. Separately, on the same day, they announced that they are now looking for a replacement for CEO Michelle Vinatzos, who has been there for about five and a half years and has presided over the development approval and rollout of Agile. Yeah, what did you guys make of the tone of the announcement from Biogen? Like, it, it wasn't like Michelle Vinances is leaving immediately to spend more time with his family. It was, you know, he's going to stay with us uh, while we begin this search. Um, what did you think? My, my thought, I immediately thought of conscious uncoupling, what I thought of. <laughs> that this is what it's like. I mean, you know, look, you know, I, I feel like... Michelle Vinatos has a lot of dirt on the Biogen board, and the Biogen board has a lot of dirt on him, and they have not gotten along. We have reported that extensively, um, and I think, but I think at the same time, you kind of just, you know, you have to just get along as long as you can. And so, yeah, so the, everything, everyone is going to be very nice to each other, and um, it's going to be nice and smooth transition as possible. But at the same time, he's a lame duck CEO. Like, he can stay for as long as he wants, but like. The guy is a lame duck now, and you know I'm not surprised. You know he probably won't be showing up at the Biogen offices very often. You know, in you know moving forward. So then, of course, there were a lot of questions um, from folks about what they're going to be looking for in the next CEO and what the timing of that is going to be. And in fact, it was the first question asked on the conference call. Um, Matthew Harrison from Morgan Stanley says, Michelle, I was hoping you could comment on the CEO transition in terms of timing and as well as what the board's looking for in terms of successor. And Michelle didn't exactly answer those questions, did he? No, not whatsoever. He uh, explained that his tenure, five and a half years at Biogen, is actually roughly how much time he spent at previous stops in his career. And, you know, I, I 
I guess I, I wouldn't expect him necessarily to, you know, begin pontificating on the person who will fill his seat in that one assumes he finds this to be disappointing, but it does leave people guessing. I mean, this is a board that has famously been gridlocked for many years and that, you know, as we reported, Vunatos was himself a compromised candidate. He had a pretty sizable vision for what Biogen would be like and what it would purchase, maybe more importantly, uh, when he took over in 2017. And as we know, it was the board that stood in the way of the implementation of that vision. So I don't really know what people should expect. I mean, that's that's kind of, if you look back at actually Wall Street reactions to Vunatos's appointment, it was kind of perceived even then that he was probably a compromise candidate. And I remember people pointing out that his selection as the next CEO suggests that the board is not willing to relinquish that control that it has to appoint someone who you know would be empowered to actualize a vision outside of their plans for the company. And so I, I think part of the question is people are looking for assurances or even clues that the board has changed its approach to this and maybe asking Vunatos was the wrong way to go for that. I don't, I don't know who they're going to name uh, as the new CEO, but it's not going to be a Greek guy. Maybe it'll be a Greek woman or just a woman in <laughs> it, general. <laughs> it could be a Greek woman. I just don't think it's going to be a Greek guy after the whole Greek mafia thing that we reported on, Damien. I just don't think they're going to go there again. I would be surprised as well. And while I, mean, I, I laughed at that, I mean, if people recall, the you know Vunatsos's Greek heritage actually became a flashpoint for Biogen, whose chairman uh, is Greek and who uh, Vinatso's successor was George Skangos, who similarly um, has Greek heritage. And Biogen's largest shareholder, a company called PrimeCab, which owns, I think, roughly 10% of the firm, actually wrote a letter to the board back in 2017 when Vinatso's was hired to say, functionally, this is too many Greeks. It's, it's, it's not just an issue of perception from the outside, but from within, as they pointed out, if you were a non-Greek person within Biogen, you might reasonably conclude that your prospects at the company were limited by virtue of that and leave. And that this is a problem for, you know, a publicly traded company that needs to attract and retain talent. So, you know, it's the, the Greek thing is one of those funny, not funny things where it's true that there's a preponderance of Greeks at Biogen, which, you know, whatever you can feel however you want about that but it's also like materially relevant to their business so i don't know so georgian Campolis, paris paneotopolis simo simonidis <laughs> don't bother submitting your sorry resumes. guys go somewhere else <laughs> so um you know investors are trying to figure out what direction biogen is going to go in because this is really viewed as you guys pointed out as like a big reset for the company i mean if you look at the entire business they they were they're betting they're like almost essentially completely betting on Alzheimer's like they have other pipeline programs but the rest of their business is shrinking um and so uh, RBC Brian Abrams ran an investor survey did you guys see this note from him I did see this yes I did yeah. So he polled investors about what they would want to see in a new CEO for Biogen. And it was actually kind of split, but the top answer was a CEO focused on business development with a track record of successful in licensing or acquisitions. That was 39% of respondents. 36% said they're looking for a CEO with a history of cleaning up and selling companies. So that's a pretty close split between those two. And just to round it out, 12% uh, wanted somebody to focus on cost cutting and restructuring and proficiency. 11% wanted somebody with R&D expertise in neurology. And 2% wanted somebody with R&D expertise in a non-neurology field. So I, I found this I found this survey fascinating, maybe for a different reason. I, I feel like, of course, 
buy side investors want a CEO who's going to do a lot of deals, right? Because they all want their companies to get acquired by Biogen. You know, it's like talking your book. But I also think it sort of doesn't, and you know, Damien alluded to this earlier, it sort of doesn't really take into account the company's board. Like when you say that you want a BD focused CEO with a track, a guy with a, or, or, or a woman with a track record of doing deals, you have to consider the fact that Biogen's board has like basically always been so super conservative and they squash any efforts to do BD. So I think what really has to change is not only the CEO, but it, the board has to change. Now, we have seen a couple of older or, or, or longtime directors on Biogen's board leave in January. There has been talk about a board refresh, so you know having more directors leave uh, leave the board, bringing in sort of like fresh blood to kind of rejuvenate the board. And I think that's kind of what you might want to look for. Like if that happens along with the CEO, I mean, that could that could signal some real change inside Biogen. The other thing that's important to note is, you know, regardless of who takes over as CEO, Meg, as you mentioned before, Biogen is so deeply tied to new treatments for Alzheimer's disease, the most like famously fraught and perilous uh, research project in all of biotech. And so the next big card to turn over is phase three data for yet another Alzheimer's treatment, this one called lecanemab, which are expected in the fall. So Meg, I have a question for you. Do you think, and this is kind of speculative, so, uh, but we can do that on the podcast. Do you think that the timing of uh, all these announcements, particularly, you know, Vunatis leaving, does that have, does that say anything about the confidence in Lucanumab? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like you'd have a better, a better thought about that than, than I, but I, I will say I find it just, just baffling, but I, I also get it that, you know, they, they built up this giant commercial infrastructure for one Alzheimer's drug. They've got another Alzheimer's drug that's going to read out and they're filing for accelerated approval of it, even though that did not go great the first time around, but they are going to have the phase three data. So then they'll be able to, they hope, use that to support full approval. But, you know, they're firing all these people, basically, and then they're going to have to rehire a bunch of people if lecanemab works. And so the question asked on the call was, what does that say about your confidence in lecanemab? And they said, well, it doesn't say anything, but just keeping these people on for all of this time didn't make sense. But it just kind of shows you the life of a sales rep. Oof. Yeah, the timing is really the timing is really interesting because you would you would assume that they've already obviously given some thought to who they might approach for this job. And but you've got this really big clinical trial readout of lecanemab coming up. So I, I would assume that like anyone who's considering that job might want to wait for the lecanemab readout. I don't know, Damien, do you have what do you think? If you were if you were if you were considering becoming the new CEO of Biogen and I know that is a job that you're well qualified for. Um, <laughs> what would you what would you be doing? Well, I mean, I would be concerned about the legacy of the board that we talked about and, and, and whether I would get the kind of latitude that I would need in order to, you know, implement whatever my vision was. But then the situation the company's in right now almost makes it kind of attractive because if Lecanemab fails, it's not your fault. But if the drug succeeds wildly, let's say, in the early days of your tenure, you're kind of born on third base in your new job. And you know, all the revenues that were once projected for Adjuhelm now become yours to play around with. So I can see how it could kind of be an attractive proposition, provided, of course, that you can get assurances from this board that you are actually in charge. 
So I was talking to Brian Scorney, the analyst at Baird, uh, yesterday about this. And, you know, someone had jokingly said that he should be the CEO of Biogen. And he told me that if he if he did get the job, he's going to buy a big boat and he's inviting us all on <laughs> uh, for a party. So let's hope that he gets the job. I hear Greece is lovely in the summer. So before we go, because rampant speculation is apparently OK here in this safe space, um, guys, if you had to choose who Biogen CEO, next CEO is going to be, one name each. Guesses. Real guesses. I'll go with the nostalgia pick, and I'll say Jim Mullen, former <laughs> Biogen CEO, bringing it all back home, maybe even hiring Paul Clancy, his former CFO, to come back, bring putting the band back together. That's my pick. Cue the boys are back in town. Damien? Exactly. Ooh. I'm trying to think of like a- It doesn't have to be a realistic pick, because mine's not realistic. That's true. I was trying to think of like a turnaround- Mine will never happen. Artist- so to speak. I have, I have thoughts, which are. So one thought that came to mind was Jeremy Levin, who, when you start to see this poll from RBC and you think about people who were known for doing a lot of BD, um, he was really well respected for what he did at Bristol Myers with the whole string of pearls acquisition strategy. Uh, then he went to Teva as the CEO. Um, you know, Teva's going through a, <laughs> a big rough patch. I mean, actually, that kind of makes you think, Cora Schultz, who's the CEO of Teva, who's been trying to, you know, been tasked with trying to turn that around. Two two folks who may come to mind. Um, another person is Katrine Bosley. She was CEO of Editas. Ooh. But she, I, like that I think, one. spent some time at Biogen um, in business development, uh, commercial operations, and portfolio strategy, according to a bio of her I just Googled. Um, so maybe Katrine will get a call. So she could become the CEO, and at the same time, Biogen would buy Arrakis Therapeutics, which is the company that she chairs right now. And Michael Gilman, who is the CEO of Arrakis, could come back to Biogen where he used to work. This is all fitting together. Adam has a very rich biotech personnel fantasy life. I've been drinking a lot of coffee this morning, so I'm just the brain is pinging. You know, the Jeremy Levin thing is really interesting because, you know, separate from his stated commitments to his current employer, Ovid Therapeutics, where he's the CEO, which, you know, and obviously none of us have spoken to any of these people. This is all wild speculation. But I wonder, you know, Meg, as you mentioned, fixing Teva Pharmaceuticals has been for years the saving the New York Knicks of like the drug industry, which is that people come in with big ideas to do it and run into the buzzsaw of its institutional dysfunction. And, you know, Teva's board famously described as a snake pit, if I recall correctly, from a few years ago. I wonder whether, Jeremy, having had the trying to save Teva experience would be willing to go down what might be a relatively similar road with Biogen. Maybe the answer is yes. I mean, I, I don't know. Well, look, let's end this by saying that if Stelios Papadopoulos and Alex Denner uh, on Biogen's board need help, recommendations, I mean, they should come to us and maybe come on the show and we can we can all hash this out. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you, Teresa Gaffney, for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and if you're a member of Biogen's board and want to tell us who you're going to choose as the next CEO. You can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.